0: Alrighty, so part three of Jane Eyre. Let's get to it. All right, Cami. We have family, so keep your slides because we talked quite a bit. You can just hold it by the thingy. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so the first few chapters in
1: this reading were like the golden chapters for this topic because she goes back to see all her old family, and then like when she comes back, she greets Rochester and Mrs. Fairfax and everything. So there's just a bunch of quotes in the first few chapters there, and then chapter 23, I noticed that, um, well, chapter 22, she calls Thornfield home and she sort of starts referring to it as a home rather than just where she's living, which is interesting because she hasn't- really significant. Yeah, she hasn't really referred to anything else like that before. And then I have a second slide. And so um, near the end, I just sort of uh, cited where uh, Grace Poole comes in and it's revealed that Mr. Rochester has a wife and that's an extension of his family, so I just wrote that down
2: and then, Mm -hmm.
0: yeah. Yeah, and I mean, this whole idea of coming back home is extremely prevalent in Jane Eyre, this idea of returning home, and it's part of the reason I love it so much because I left home for 17 years and came back after that. It's very, very strange and weird and I can super duper relate. It's a whole mood. I suggest you all leave home for a hot bit. It's good for the soul, I promise. Um, all right. Let's see.
3: Okay. Um, so for the non-romantic platonic um, relationships and things like that, uh, first I wanted to talk about the situation between Jane and Rochester, you know, before they get together and their, I call it, you know, friend zone edition
2: <laughs>
3: because, you know they're acting like they have no feelings for each other when obviously they do and i use these quotes because this is when she's like about to leave and he's like oh well what are we gonna do are you just gonna go okay well you know (laughs) then there's nothing um and then the other one we have been good friends you know that's right before the things happen Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the things happen yeah Okay, so on this slide, I talked about more of the other aspects of the relationships, such as um, when she's thinking about Helen Burns. So that's an old friendship that she had, but it still affects her, like we said earlier. It affects her throughout the entire novel. So I thought that was interesting. Then it shows how her relationship developed with um, her student Adele with that one because she feels a lot of affection for her, and it's very mutual. And even when she leaves, you can see her, like, crying as she, like, hugs her and things like that. Um, okay, so also I thought this quote was really interesting because this is when she's going through, like, that tough time. You know, she's, like, in her room. She's sad. You know.
0: Understatement. You,
3: you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know how it is. Mm-hmm. So um, I
0: do know how it is. Yeah. My boyfriend has a wife.
3: <laughs> that it, it's hard <laughs> um, so this quote at the end right there it says friends always forget those whom fortune forsakes I thought that was like the most important part of this quote I mm-hmm. thought that was really interesting insight um, on her part
0: yes so true alrighty Rebecca oh boy yeah right there's so there. much th- you got this slide this time yeah but there's so <laughs> much to say
4: and oh, I, yeah. there wasn't <laughs> enough okay so all you guys know this stuff like if you read it and um in chapter 22 it like talks about um mr rochester saying how he's gonna marry um miss ingram but we all find out that's a trick later and then
0: you know when you (laughs) manipulate the girl you really like Into liking you by bringing a different girl in and making her jealous. You know how well that yeah that that
4: that goes down. Classic
0: strategies to get what you want in relationships. And and then,
4: uh, like Jane, (laughs) says that she loves Mr. Rochester, and she says that to the reader, and then she later reveals, like, says it to Rochester's face in the next chapter, and then he says that he loves her, and then they propose, and she accepts. And then um, in chapter 24, I love this line. Is it really for love he is going to marry you? And this is Mrs. Fairfax. And I thought that she was so right about that. And then you find out later that she was even more right about that. (laughs) And, um, like, in those chapters, I just couldn't see it as, like, their relationship as actual love in like comparison to an obsession of an idea or something.
0: well i don't know if i super agree with this statement right here that he's more obsessed with the idea of her being his wife than loving her i think he is attempting but culturally he's never seen it happen right so he does try to like make her a part of his high society world but i don't think it's in an effort to change her i think it's in an effort to include her I think he just didn't have a precedent. I, don't, I, I genuinely don't know, but I don't think, I do think, because he talks about having, remember that in the proposal scene, when he talks about having a string connected under his rib, which is a biblical allusion to Adam's rib creating Eve, you get that. Um, he, the, he, he's essentially introducing the idea of a soulmate, right? When he says that there's a string connected under my rib, uh, connected to yours, that if you leave, that string will break and I will bleed internally. It's just beautiful imagery. If any of you have met your soulmate, I can tell you uh, the, that, that sensation is very real. I just happened to be lucky enough to actually marry mine, and it's a whole mood. But, like, I, and then, until you feel that way, it's hard to even relate, yeah, right? Yeah, it was like that. And then, like, and
4: then there was the whole thing, like, oh, yeah, he has a wife
0: already.
4: Yeah, he has a wife already. And then like all those feelings and then her dream about like Grace Poole and the vampire and when she was telling him about that, she was like,
0: like Oh snap. Yeah. And then
4: he's concerned. Out, and
2: then yeah.
0: you're like, ah! I know. This is this is why I think this book is so beautiful, because there's so much nuance and so much debate to be had. And guess what else there's nuance in every single one of your hearts and minds, right? So I think Charlotte Bronte does an incredible job of capturing what it really is to be human, because never in my mind am I like I'm a hundred percent this or I'm a hundred percent that, like never. And I think that that she was daring enough to show that nuance in a way that it hasn't been before. Did you have a thingy?
2: Yeah. Um, did Mrs. Fairfax know about like the secret life, and is that why she was so upset? Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Every, every, just, every, everybody. <clears throat> I'm pretty sure that she did know, but it's never said either way, but I'm pretty sure she did know. And when she says she doesn't know, I'm pretty sure it's a lie.
5: Well, Rochester said that he told everybody in the household not to tell Jane about
0: Yeah, that. because knowing knowing about how households were structured in that time, Mrs. Fairfax, I mean, it was like a very serious business position to be the leader of a household. She like and a she would have employed and paid Grace Poole, and, and we know that Grace Poole was paid more than anybody else to care for Bertha. So I would be surprised if she didn't, but it's a good question, right? Um, okay, Stacy is not here. Okay, so the idea of marriage, finally the idea of marriage shifts in this, in this whole deal. The idea of marriage shifts from marriage of cl- uh, social class and wealth to the idea of marriage for love and even the fact that Rochester would even think of marrying Jane it was revolutionary yeah it's super gross that he kind of gaslighted his employee into loving him after a while right but at the same time the fact that he even thought that he could create it or had to go to great means to make that come about by bringing a character foil it you get it um is is gross but it's still revolutionary that he would even put that much work into wooing his employee Right, but the idea of marriage for the first time, Charlotte Bronte specifically saying, "I have just as much soul and heart as you do," which is why, and and it's he, he his point here was to get Jane to understand that she was Rochester's equal regardless of social class and station. He he brought Blanche Ingram in. It's gross. It's a huge red flag situation, right? But. He brought Blanche Ingram in to get Jane to the point where she could say, despite the beauty, despite the social class and wealth, I'm still an equal to Rochester just as much as, if not more, as Blanche Ingram is. And he gets her to admit it. And the moment she admits it, that's when he proposes. So his whole idea of helping Jane understand that nothing else matters except for the equality of their souls... Once she gets to that point in her mind, he proposes. So there is this idea that is revolutionary that Rochester doesn't want Jane until she truly understands that they're equal, which again is a new marriage concept in this society. It is super gross how he decided to go about getting her to have that realization, right? But it is was grossly effective for sure. And the fact that he cared enough to get her to that realization before he proposed is a revolutionary idea. It's easy to look at Rochester through our current day glasses and say, hashtag me too, hashtag cancel, like there's all these things that we could do, right? But he really did put a lot of effort into getting her to come to terms with the fact that even though she she says she's poor and little and obscure and plain, she just lists out the reasons why she's not as good as him, and then she says... But I'm still as uh, your equal, essentially. So this idea of equality in the souls for marriage partner as opposed to equality in outward appearance or social class, it's revolutionary, right? All right, Kaylee. Oh, she's not here either. Okay, so the gothic elements, I mean, I'm sure you can understand that the person hidden up in the attic the whole time, and we finally found the source of the disembodied laughter, the disembodied voices. We finally find the source of the doorknob turning and the footsteps in the hall, and we find the source of the person who set his bed on fire. And all the time we've had this, uh, what's it called, red herring of Grace Poole. Red herring is a literary device where you set somebody else up. Uh, in suspicion so then you can give a big reveal later right what's that I still didn't hear what you said what I mean depends on the context (laughs) there's a lot of ways that we can talk about this but it's sort of kind of yeah Um, anyway uh, yeah and the whole idea that the nightmares and the dreams increase right before the big reveal um, the past coming back to bite you in the butt later on these are all hugely major 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 gothic elements and don't get me started about the gothic elements of her leaving and wandering the moors and almost straight up dying in her like that's a whole gothic mood that also happens in Wuthering Heights the moors of England are a famous uh metaphor for emotional turmoil so that's a thing all those things are gothic elements oh also monsters that vampire that everyone saw and was concerned about just happened to be a woman of color locked up in the basement I mean in the attic yeah um so you know the idea of othering and monsters it, she was Caribbean by the way Bertha she was a woman of color which is a whole other layer of yuck yuck when we talk about othering people and marginalizing people. <laughs> we'll get into it later. All right. And hidden things, yes, and the wilderness yes, all those things, yes. All right, Haley.
6: Um so clearly Rochester, our Byronic hero in this story. Um, you we know, air quotes at this point. At this yes. Point, yeah. Um so a lot of his Byronic hero elements come from him being self centered when he. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, on the left are some of the quotes throughout the chapters that I think were important. I really liked in chapter 23 how it, not just in chapter 23, but how it kept bringing up his shadow and how it sort of could feel in a way, just very brooding and dark. Um, and then a lot of the quotes are him being witty and sarcastic, but in chapter 26 and 27...
0: I do know that most witty and sarcastic people, it's really, well, in my case, it's just covering up a lot of pain, right? Mm-hmm. If you've ever noticed anybody who's super sarcastic in your life, they've probably been through a lot of stuff.
6: Well, that, yeah, and he was also, like, just super secretive about so many things. Or and lies. Mm-hmm.
0: Secrets, I mean, that's a nice way of saying... He just super duper light
6: about it. And finally in like chapter 26 and 27, we learn about his dark past and I guess his trauma that made him do the things that he's well, been doing. It's
0: important to talk about that trauma because it's important to remember that it wasn't that he found this lady that he really liked and married her and then she got crazy and he disposed of her. That's not what happened. What did happen?
6: No, his family sent him off to marry her because... They didn't just
0: send him off, they literally tricked him. Like, they literally hid, they knew that Bertha was mentally unstable. But they they wanted the money. Yes, so it was all, it was a money arrangement, and he was just a pawn in his Rochester family getting the money Mm -hmm. from Bertha's family. Like, it was was a real bummer, because, I mean, it wasn't his choice. He was bamboozled into this whole deal. And he did think that Bertha was beautiful, he did want to marry her, but they had purposefully made it so Bertha and Rochester did not spend time together they purposefully hid the fact that there was a hereditary line of great mental instability in the family they hid all of that so it's I mean that is the past trauma and the past the it's always a Byron hero is always a wrong has been done to them yes they committed sin later on because you know he like walked a lady up and the attic it's kind of problematic but it wasn't his, ori- his original sin he exacerbated the situation but his original sin was his father's and his brothers that's important to know
6: yeah um and I think another really important part was just at the wedding when he's running back to the house how like angry he gets because they've interrupted him he became very prideful in what they were doing and he got very angry.
0: <laughs> well, he he ha- you can see because he prays as he's mm-hmm. as he's walking into the wedding, he prays and asks God to basically sanction the wedding even though he was already married because his marriage was a sham and he didn't believe it to be an actual spiritual marriage, right? He he felt like there was nothing godly about the marriage. So when he's praying to God to ask God to sanction his second marriage, because he felt he was only married by law to Bertha Um, he's I don't necessarily know if it was pride I think it was uh, you know disappointment that God didn't somehow move heaven and earth to make him be able to you know be a bigamist by law yeah
7: yeah you know yeah did Rochester have a traumatic childhood or was this like the only trauma it's alluded
0: to that he did But does it ever specify? It's not specific. It's not Mm -hmm. specific, okay. So we know that, I mean, if you have a dad who's willing to sell you off to a a known crazy lady just to get money, one can surmise that he wasn't a great father leading up to that point either. There's just hints and whispers of further emotional and possibly physical abuse as well. So that's a whole thing. Did somebody else have their hand raised? Okay, all righty.
8: Um, so I had self-control versus free expression. And, um, the first example we see of self-control is in chapter 21, when she goes back to her family. Um, and she's not doing well, and she's, like, about to die, and she cheats Jane of her inheritance, yet Jane still forgives her, even though, like, she treated her so, so poorly. Can you
0: imagine?!
8: If you found out that you're crazy aunt, you had an
0: uncle that you you always wanted true family, you always wanted true family, and you had an uncle who wrote and said that he wanted Uh to be your adopted father, he wanted to give you all that he has, and your aunt, out of spite, didn't tell you, and then that dude died later, and you never had a chance to get to know that guy who reached out and was trying to, can you imagine? Would you be forgiving Who taught Jane to be that forgiving? Helen. Helen. So I'll I'll let you listen to Helen's uh, song from the beginning of the musical. It's called Forgiveness, and she specifically talks about having a forgiving nature despite whatever, and it's a whole mood. But I think it's incredible that Jane, just without thought, forgives Mrs. Reed, even though Mrs. Reed is 100% non-apologetic. Mm-hmm. She still maintains that what she did
8: was wrong, but she ain't sorry. That's gross. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, especially like contrasting earlier in the book when she kind of like blew up on her, and when she didn't have that self-control, it just so shows how much like progress she's made. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> we also witness Jane's free expression in chapter twenty-two um, when she talks to Rochester about him feeling like home to her. Um, she's, like, kind of unafraid to tell him how she feels. Um, and then he ends up proposing. So, um, But it's almost as if he was waiting for her to get to a point where she could freely express that. Yeah. It's uh, exactly. not great, but it is what it is. Yeah. Um, and then later, we also see in 27 that Jane, it says Jane instantly forgave Rochester in her heart but she has to have, like, the self-control and, like, respect kind of for herself to leave, and to leave literally everything that she has and have, like, this terrible week of having nothing. Almost dying. Yeah. You get it. A mental
0: breakdown, at the very least, by our definition, currently.
8: But, yeah, that's that's about it. Well, I this is why
0: I love this book so much. And this exact thing that you pointed out is why I love this book so much, because... Um, very rarely do we get characters who, when they have the decision between getting all they ever dreamed of and losing everything, and the only thing between, the only idea between those two things is your own personal standards and ideals, very rarely do we get a chance to see a person actually choose the harder path. It's it's intense. So basically what she says, and it's the, it's my favorite quote from the whole, I can't remember the exact words, but she says, Rochester said that nobody would know. We could live as brother and sister. He wouldn't try anything. He just wanted to be with me. And he just kept saying that nobody would know and it would be okay, right? But the most incredible moment of the book, and it's just so quiet, but she says, but I would know. And in that moment, she doesn't care what anybody else thinks except for her own opinion of herself. And for a lady to prioritize her own opinion of herself Above men's opinions, society's opinions, religion's opinions, right? To prioritize what she wanted in terms of her own self-definition and to act on that, even though the path was rough. That's why this book is my favorite. And she, she, I don't think she had to like run across the moors and like almost die and stuff. I, I don't think that was necessary, but she wasn't really in a good mental place at the time. Um, but the fact that she said, but I would know i would know and that's all that she needed to make that decision and i think that that is just a remarkable thing that people forget when it's easy to have this beautiful self-actualization thought be overshadowed by the secret wife in the attic but that is why i love this she said but i would know and that's what i can't live with i just find that really inspiring anywho um who do we have here oh
9: Okay, so I had the money one. So basically, I just split it up into two different categories. There's, like, the desire for wealth so that your life can be better, and then there's, like, the necessity for wealth so that you can actually, like, live. And I feel like uh, the improved lifestyle is, like, everybody except for Jane because, like, Jane kind of just ditches, like, a bunch of money that Rochester was going to give her if she married him just so that, like, you know, her own values and stuff could be, like, protected or whatever. Um, probably the best quotes for, uh, like, the necessity for survival is, uh, in 24. Like, she talks about how, uh, like, she's poor or whatever, but she still has, like, a soul and a heart and everything. Like, she doesn't need money, basically. And then chapter 28, uh, what does that even say? I read this, like, last week. I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, she doesn't need, like, a ton of money. Like, she's just saying that, uh... Like she abandoned her rich life or whatever to get, you know, just poor, just straight up poor. <laughs> like she doesn't care about money. Uh, and then 27, for like improved lifestyle for Rochester, it's just like, wait, all improves their lifestyle. Oh yeah, okay. So, like his family just told him like to marry Bertha or whatever just for money and like. His family profited off of it, but, like, his life was miserable. Like, he didn't love her or or anything. So, yeah, that's the money stuff. That was really (laughs) crappy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh,
0: Oh, nice catch. Look at you.
10: Um, So I got uh, mentions of, like, religious morals and religious duty. Um, So there was a lot of this in Chapter 21 with um, her cousin, Eliza she says how like she like three times a day she like uh, studied a Bible and she's Eliza herself is very committed to the lifestyle of religion and uh, Jane even says that her style of dressing is very puritanical um, and I think it kind of it's interesting to see how Jane like compares Eliza and Helen because I think she admires Helen more and she even mentions her in chapter 21 and she kind of admires how like strong her faith was even like through her death and when compared to Eliza I feel like sometimes Jane almost pities her because her um, routine is so I guess it's like clockwork Eliza really does you know she's really committed to it and she doesn't have much time for anything else Um, and then I think there was uh, oh yeah Eliza she mentions how she wants to be a nun um, when they're saying goodbye to each other, and I think it kind of reminds me of Brocklehurst in a way. They kind of have the same um, morals where religion is this kind of like strict conservative thing. Um, and I think that was interesting. Um, and then I think it's also interesting, like around the the section where uh, Rochester is proposing to Jane how she says that um, we stood at god 's feet equal as we are. Um, and I think that's just really interesting because at the time that's not that's not really a thing um. so
0: here so we're talking about the reason that Jane does decide to you know not marry Rochester in the end is because of her religious morals, right She used to have religious morals impressed upon her by Mrs. Reed and the family, and she didn't live by those that's not what dictated her heart, right. But after she met Helen and she started to realize that religion could be a positive influence in her life, she started to adhere to those morals for herself and for nobody else. So this is the part that I was talking about. Um, I don't know what page it is in yours, but she, he's asking, who cares for you? Who in the world will be injured by what you do? Just stay with me anyway. No one's going to know. And she says, this is my quote that I love, I care for myself. She's basically saying, I care. I'll know right? I care for myself. The more solitary, the more friendless, the more unsustained I am, the more I will respect myself. I will keep the law given by God, sanctioned by man. I will hold to the principles received by me when I was sane and not mad as I am now. She's saying that love has made her crazy, but she's not going to let that cloud her judgment. Laws and principles are not for the times. This is my favorite. Laws and principles are not for the times when there is no temptation. They are for such moments as this when body and soul rise in mutiny against their rigor stringent are they inviolate they should be Uh, if at my individual convenience I might break them what would be their worth so I'm not by any means asking you to adhere to her Christian ideals but I am asking you to think whatever your morals and values are would you actually be willing to stick up for them regardless of what happened regardless of how it would affect your life negatively and I just think that it's a beautiful thing that she said these laws are not there for when times are easy these rules that I've made for myself are there for these hard times and what would they mean if I could break them just because times got tough I just thought I just think she's uh whatever religion you believe in got the right idea about those religious morals she's not following them because other people expect it she's following them for her which I think is a beautiful thing Um, Aubrey.
1: Okay, welcome to mental illness.
0: Yay! Um, I don't know, was there much mental illness in this section?
1: Yep. (laughs) 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 Yep. So I have six slides because there was just so much. Um, Uh, (laughs) sorry.
0: (laughs) going be her. wait listen but just pick out your favorites or yes just okay right. this is like it, it is so ballsy of Charlotte bronte to even talk about mental illness and the fact that you could find six slides on it in this section is so meaningful she's so ballsy in so many ways because it was so misunderstood Okay, go ahead.
1: And the pictures on the side are mm-hmm. of mental asylums during the Victorian era, so it's kind of like depicting what they did to treat mental illness. So,
0: wait, wait, wait. What was the normal thing that a guy whose wife was crazy would have done at just the time? Lock them up. Crazy is a bad word. I shouldn't have said that. You get it. Yeah. So what would a normal, that the normal thing to do if your wife was crazy or if she just had opinions and thoughts and stuff, what was the normal thing that a husband would do to a mentally ill, for a mentally ill wife. What would they do? Just lock them up. Lock them up in a mental asylum, which is very prevalent at the time. Bertha's mom was locked up, right? So, and Rochester saw that Bertha's mom had been locked up for her whole life. There was no treatment. There was just get them away from society situation. And men also were able to commit their wives with no real proof other than she's difficult to handle. So, again, if you had thoughts or opinions or expressed them in any way, shape, or form, you could be just sent to a mental asylum. That
4: shows how much respect
0: he has for Jane to, like, to ask for her. Yes, yeah, it does. And, the, and so that's why it's super gross that Rochester locked his wife up. It is. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. However, if you look in the time period, there was an alternative, and the alternative to him was worse. He did hire a lady and pay her a lot to have 24-hour care for his wife, and he does say that he locked her. I don't know how how true this is, but he does say he locked her up in the attic because the two times she got out, what did she do? She tried to kill people. And um, spoiler alert, it won't be the last time, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Which could have made her crazy! (laughs) Yeah, it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. And the fact that Bertha was a woman of color, they do say it just a tweetsy bit, but the fact that she was foreign is what they say. The fact that she was foreign really did, in some mindsets, make them feel more justified in locking her up because
6: it's gross. It's, you know,
0: racism, yeah? Yeah,
5: why didn't she
0: kill Grace yet? Well, Grace, like, if you look into what Grace did, like, she was an expert caregiver for a mentally ill person. Like, Grace was no joke. And the only reason that she got up twice is that because she'd seen so much, Grace was an alcoholic. And the two times that Bertha got out, she was, Grace was drunk. Mm -hmm. From the things that she'd seen and done, you get it. <laughs> Self-medication. It's fine. Um, okay, go ahead.
1: Okay, so in the beginning of this section, there's not a lot, like, specific about mental illness treatments, but Jane is just feeling distressed when Mr. Rochester says that she has to go to Ireland. Um, <laughs> next slide. Um, so Mr. Rochester is proposed to Jane, and she just, she's just very anxious. And uh, Mr. Rochester, like, tells her that her fears are just in her mind even when like
0: you know gaslighting just walks in <laughs> you know that yeah
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> next slide <laughs> um so jane is just very anxious about the wedding and stuff and then bertha mason is just introduced and then rochester is just saying that she's mad and then also at the very bottom of this slide uh, there's a quote from mr rochester saying that if jane got it jane was insane then he would still love her but then like comparing that to Bertha, where. But you like never loved yeah. Bertha
0: because they were pushed together. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Next slide. <laughs> um, so Mr. Rochester is just continually talking about Bertha Mason's family history, talking about how her, his mo- her mom was in an asylum and how all the family just had a bunch of stuff that happened to them. Yep. Next slide. Um, so Mr. Rochester is still just saying, talking about. Her condition and then jane feels like she's going insane now and then she leaves thornfield <laughs> next slide okay and so i have just a big reflection about how it's used so
0: wait pause before you get into that her leaving thornfield and walking across the moors and other pe- people offered her food and she doesn't take like it's a whole thing but what would we call her experience on the moors she describes it pretty intensely what by our current definitions would we call what happened to her as she was wandering? What, an adventure? Oh, that is a euphemism. I have never heard a better one, right? right. What's, she, she had like a full psychotic break.
6: Uh,
0: that's a, again a euphemism for what happened here. Yeah, yeah. She like had a full mental health crisis, for sure. She super almost died. Okay,
1: go ahead. Okay, so Jane also frequently talks about wanting to kill herself or wishing that she was never born after bad things happened to her. And
0: pause. We also see Rochester talk about when he was married to Bertha, mm-hmm. he was so upset with what she was doing. She was sleeping around. Like, she she w- had, I, I'm pretty sure what's described, she was addicted to, she was had a sex adi- addiction, for sure. Um, so he was so upset by it and didn't know what to do with it, and there were no... Tools or resources for him. He says that he was very, very suicidal and almost did commit suicide. So this is our second talk of su- second moment of suicidal ideation in the book. It's it's no joke. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. And then at the oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And John, um, John Reed, he. Committed suicide. I mean, it's implied that he like died. He was drunk and but he definitely Mm self-destructed for sure Yeah, anyway, so third and then at the bottom I just asked
1: maybe mr. Rochester is projecting his own instability onto Bertha So like the fact that she was up in the attic that could have caused her to go insane and then mr. Rochester might just be projecting. Or maybe
0: she wasn't insane. Maybe Mm -hmm. she was just a sane lady who was like I've been locked up if I get out I'm gonna set your bed on fire You know, tit for tat. You know what I'm saying? Like, maybe she wasn't insane at all. Maybe she was just a revenge lady. And that's fine. (laughs) I get it. You know what I mean? Maybe she just wasn't. He has watched. She, Bertha, there's a window, and apparently she's watching her husband, like, totally hit up another girl this whole time. It would make me mad, and I'm not crazy. You know what I'm saying? I'm just saying, "Mm -hmm." yeah, Well, that's some interesting foreshadowing. Okay. All right, Brigham.
2: You know, these guys are really not They're killing people. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I had the moon and birds. I didn't see a lot of bird symbolism in these sections, but there was a a ton of, like, huge moon things. So at the um first one i had was in chapter 23 um it talks about when jane kind of comes back a little bit after um mrs reed dies she is walking through the garden and she finds she kind of smells like she describes it like um, mr rochester smoking somewhere and it kind of makes her like happy but before she does that the moon is like shining almost like a prelude to anything it's like a I feel like the main symbolism of the moon is like to show you something important's about to happen or, or maybe a change. So
0: the question is, does the moon usher in change? Does the, is the moon what's guiding the change? Or is the moon just signaling the change? And there's a lot of theories that the moon is a representation of God and God is putting Jane through all of these trials and refining moments in her life to help her gain self-actualization. It's a whole thing. It's a whole moon. I've seen doctoral theses written on the moon in January. Anyway.
2: Yeah. And oh, and, oh, go ahead. So next I had a, in chapter 25, a, a little bit after, she kind of, she's starting to having, like, the weird dreams about, like, the girl with a veil that, like, splits in half, and then, like.
0: A split in half veil? <laughs> that couldn't symbolize anything, <laughs> right? No. No. And then the tree yeah. that they proposed under, it was also split in uh-huh. half by lightning. Yeah. And it couldn't uh, be metaphors. No? Okay. Cool. And a little
2: bit before, like, the actual wedding and all that trauma happens, she describes, like, the moon as, like, a blood red, which also ushers in or, like, foreshadows a big change or, like, a problem that's going to happen.
10: hmm
2: And then uh, the last one I had was in 20se- or chapter 27, um... Jane decides to leave and um, she has like a vision or encounter of like the red room it talks about and then the moon is like described as like a like a
0: a nurturing female presence oh Uh
2: yeah that's that's Mm the way I was was trying to put it yeah and she comes to comfort the moon kind of comes to comfort her and like encourage her that it's good that she's to leave to protect her like more religious values. Mm-hmm. So.
0: And uh, there are some references to birds, but in this section, it's almost always Rochester referring to Jane as a bird or likening her unto a bird. So in chapter 27, he says, When are you inquisitive, Jane? You always make me smile. You open your eyes like an eager bird. And so it's just like he talks a lot about her connecting her bird imagery, and it's a, it's a really interesting way that Charlotte Bronte illustrates the soulmate idea because throughout the whole first half of the book, Jane is comparing herself to birds and likening herself unto birds, and her soulmate also sees that connection and starts talking about her in reference to birds as well. Do
4: you think when she found the book, like, when she went back home, not home, but, like, to Gateshead mm-hmm. when Miss Reed was dying and she found the book of the birds, mm-hmm. and it, like, was in the same spot, can that represent, like how she realized that if she would have stayed, she wouldn't have changed and she would have just stayed the same.
0: Yeah, and that's why an author always, always puts a back-home experience. It's they, If you've left home, the author will always have them go back to show who they were at that one time and the fact that leaving helped them progress and become more self-actualized, and if they hadn't left, it never would have happened. It's a very, very important idea.
5: Oh, yeah, so just like every time they talked about the birds, it always reminded me of... Uh Henrik Ibsen in The Doll's House. Mm-hmm. And I did not like that very much because, yeah. Little
0: bird, yeah. right? Yeah, my little it, it, it was diminutive in Ibsen's, uh, in Doll's House, but here, I don't necessarily think it is. But it's an interesting parallel. You could write a, uh, a synthesis essay on that imagery 100%.
7: Um, I had this quote highlighted about Uh the birds. It said, birds began singing and breaking copes. Birds were faithful to their mates. Birds were emblems of love. What was I? I like that. That was just, like, one of my favorite quotes out of
0: Well, and she's (laughs) talking about the juxtaposition between her idea as a bird and her, uh, she is breaking that norm, right? Thank you for pointing that out. Did you have a thing?
5: Oh, yeah. I was just, every time I talked about birds, like, birds are, like, small. Uh Like, you could, like. I don't know. It's just Again,
0: like... I am concerned <laughs> where your mind goes. He's like, you could just murder a bird real fast. Well, it's it just easy. like... It's, it's just like
5: small. It's, mm-hmm. And then it's kind of like how he treats her like a pet. Mm-hmm. And like, kind of like dresses her up like well, how Fairfax said.
0: Yes. How he dresses her up and makes her a pet. And then she has to say, just because I'm small, obscure, and little, some might say like a bird, right? Um, I still am your equal. and And I think... I think, it, this could definitely be argued, but I think when Rochester tries to dress her up, I don't think it's in an effort to change her. I think it's in an effort to help her realize that she is as much a part of that social class as she wants to be, but it backfires a, a teensy. It was gross. I, I I think his intentions might have been good, but it definitely didn't turn out well. Oops.
1: Um. So I got plainness or beauty and or beauty. Um so mainly in like chapter 24 Rochester like compliments her constantly saying how beautiful she is or s- all of that and she like basically turns down all of his compliments saying I know what I am you don't need to cover that up. Um also she says something about I do not call you handsome but I do find you to be handsome on the inside, even if I don't find you to be handsome on the outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, she sees um, beauty more inward than outward, and I think because Jane constantly refers to herself as plain and ugly for how she was raised.
0: And this is the famous quote. This is probably one of the top three most famous quotes from this book, Here's where she says, do you think because I am poor, I keep quoting this, but it's, a, it's Do you think because I am poor, obscure, plain and little I am soulless and heartless? You think wrong. Mm -hmm. I have as much soul as you and full of as much heart. So this is when she's finally staking that claim. She's been fighting with this like, I'm beautiful on the inside but ugly on the outside. And I'm fine with it, I'm not fine fine with it, I'm fine with it, I'm not fine with it. This moment is when she says once and for all, just because I am this doesn't mean I'm not also so just because I'm poor, obscure, plain and little, I'm soulless and heartless. You think wrong. As mu- I have as much soul as you, full of as much heart. And if God had gifted me with some beauty and much wealth, I should have made it as hard for you to leave me as it is now for me to leave you. So just that idea that, like, if I were beautiful, we'd be having a different conversation. But we're not. So here's where we're at. I think that's really—it's a really a big moment of self-actualization in the, through the lens of this plainness or beauty view that we've seen this whole time, right? Bless you. Poor, obscure, plain, and little. I love it. All right, Adam.
11: Okay, so I had the uh, gender roles and norms and so one of the first things I saw about that was when uh after Miss Reed died, both of her daughters they kinda didn't have a home anymore. So Georgina got married to a really wealthy dude so she could live in a high society life, which is what she really wanted to do.
0: Georgina again is brought in as a character foil for Jane.
11: And then Eliza just went and became a nun because that was what she'd known and there was not really anything else she could do.
0: Something that Jane talks about doing when she's wandering the moors, right?
11: And then I saw a defiance to gender norms when uh, Jane doesn't want to get the fancy clothes. She's like, that's not me. And she eventually convinces Rochester to not buy them, which was weird because that's not normally what would happen.
0: I ha- That line inspired me. My husband... We know when you're first married you don't know how to do it right and my husband would try to buy jewelry for me i'm not a jewelry person ever since i got violently mugged for jewelry it's a whole thing um so i just decided in my life i was never it wasn't me anyway i wasn't going to care about nice things this ring right here is ten dollars from walmart not even sorry um and it took him a while to like stop trying to buy me jewelry for anniversaries guess what i really want a vitamix you know what i mean like i want stuff that i care about and and it, was, and it was this book that inspired me to be like, you know what, I'm not even gonna try to like it. I don't like it, I never have. Please don't give it to me anymore. But just being willing to defy that gender norm, it's, how, it's, a, it's, a, it's a rough step even for a lady born in today's society, right? It's a whole thing. Um, who do we have? Okay.
5: Um, all right. Um, so the first... I I don't know. One of Bessie is one of the strong, nurturing women I found. Um, when she goes back to like hang out with the dying aunt she like sees that she has her own children and is like kind. Of, she's like kind of grown up, like a mother. Like earlier in the story, she was like like a cool like aunt, you know. Like she like didn't have kids. She was just kind of like nice and cool, and now she has like her own kids, and she's like. A mother and all nurturing and stuff It's cool it's and then um i don't eliza isn't exactly nurturing but she's kind of turned into a really strong woman like she knows exactly what she wants and she just she does that yeah but so she true. she just does it like she doesn't really care what anyone else thinks about it and i really like to rant about georgina where she just like tells her she's stupid and then Mrs. Fairfax is kind of like a, I, I said second, but also first, because Jane doesn't have a mom, mother to Jane when she was at Mrs. Thornfield. Is
0: definitely her mother figure. Yeah,
5: 100%. and she just kind of like watches over and like cares about her. And
0: tells her the truth about red flags.
5: Like, like that.
0: Yeah, like hey, maybe don't marry that dude. He might have some issues.
5: Yeah. 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 And then I didn't get on here, but Helen, and there's someone else.
0: Well, the moon well. is considered a strong female influence in her life, whether or not the moon is making things happen. But Charlotte Bronte very lightly supposes that God might be a female entity, because the moon is a woman, and the moon ushers her. it's a, a like it's a it's a whole thing, okay? Thank you. Oh. Okay,
12: I did it. Good job, Irene, Delaney. Alright, so we've touched on what I wrote quite a bit in this discussion. Um, but my topic was the human soul. Um, so the first quote I have is Do you think because I am poor, obscure, plain, and little, I am soulless and heartless? Um, so what I said about this was um, Jane is, because Jane is of a different social class and doesn't look like pretty or have money, I think that throughout the story she begins to think she's less of a person because of those as everyone else. Um, so throughout the whole book, she's kind of fighting an inner battle to support that she does have a soul that's just as valuable as everybody else. And then, um, at this point, she finds that her soul isn't tied to like social standing or like wealth or education, but to her humanity and I- ideals, and what she does with those. Um, and then my second quote is um, when she talks about how her body and soul rise in mutiny against the rigor um so jane is like waging an internal battle with herself because her mind and body love rochester and she doesn't she forgives him and she doesn't want to leave him because it'll like hurt and it'll it won't be fun but her soul she wants to like stand to her religious beliefs and she doesn't want to be like tainted by like living in sin or being like with rochester even though he's um married
0: Well, also, I think
12: one of the most interesting, because again,
0: there was at this time in Victorian England, this idea of soulmates, but it was scoffed at, right? And the reason we're following this idea of the human soul throughout the book is really to get to Charlotte Bronte's revolutionary ideas about soulmates. I didn't believe in soulmates before I met mine, but goodness gracious, we like think the same thoughts and together we make a complete person that I think is awesome, but just... You don't want to really hang out with us separately because it's not that fun as you you get it. Um, but this uh, line right here, um, this is what Rochester says. And think about this in terms of the human soul. He says, I have a strange feeling with regard to you as if I had a string somewhere under my left ribs. Again, that's a biblical allusion to Adam, right? Tightly knotted to a, in a to a similar string in you. And if you were to leave, I'm afraid that cord of communion another religious reference uh, would snap and then I have a notion that I take to bleeding inwardly as for you you'd forget me so he's comparing the fact that they're soulmates to a holy religious communion he's basically saying and you'll see this idea come back around again and again and again in the last parts of the book the idea that their soulmate relationship is sanctioned by God that it's a holy thing and by separating they're violating that God-given beautiful thing and they talk about it several times and there is a time when all of the other supernatural events in the book are explained by somebody, by some human thing. But there is a supernatural event in this, uh, this uh, section coming up that I want you to figure out for yourself what do you think that specifically is. Because it is, it remains unexplained. All the other supernatural events have a human cause. But there is one that doesn't and it has to do with this soulmate connection, this string under the rib. And if you've ever been in love before, you know what it is, and if you haven't, or you're wondering if you've been in love, you haven't. Um, so the thing is, uh, this idea of soulmate stuff is real, and Charlotte Bronte is making fun of Victorian society for thinking that these supernatural things aren't, don't have human causes, but then at the very end, she asks you to question that questioning, right? So take a look as you read this last section and uh, let me know what you think about it. How about that? The string under your rib—it's a thing. All right.
7: It's me. Okay.
0: I, in Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
7: um. Side so imprisonment and the color red. Um, so with imprisonment, um, so Jane is a prisoner of her past, pretty much, um, which we see in the chapter 21 um, with her going back. Um, so Mrs. Reed just considered her bad still and yet she still forgave her cuz yeah. Um Mrs. Reed was imprisoned like with Jane, like she pretty much considered it like a life sentence of just being stuck um and then Thornfield is the first place that was not a prison to Jane because it gave Jane a sense of freedom but and we then
0: specifically here Rochester in the last se- last section that Thornfield is a prison to him. <laughs> yeah, that's my right next point. I just
7: didn't want to miss that. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> um, um, So then Mr. Rochester is trapped in a marriage, um, which it was all a trick because Bertha, but Bertha's also imprisoned in the house because of Rochester, um, even though I consider that Bertha is actually trapped in her own mind, and like the, that so imprisonment, that like, yeah.
0: Is the biggest imprisonment of all is the prison of your own mind? Yes. Rochester's mental prison, Jane's mental prison on the moors, Bertha's mental prison, Mrs. Reed's mental prison of hatred. It's a whole thing. I'm so glad you brought yes.
7: that up. Um, so then Thornfield becomes a prison to both Mr. Rochester and Bertha, and yet it's like so contrasting to like Jane now sees it as like a home, but it's not. but it's not like the actual home that it is, it's Mr. Rochester that is that like freedom. Um and then the color red, there's not like really like a lot like exactly like saying the color red, but I made like there's mentions of red and fire, which often symbolized the presence of Mr. Rochester. Or um, heated
0: passions from any character like, you know, Bertha setting his bed <laughs> on fire.
7: Um so l- get it. the first like big mention was his presence in the orchard um or Orchard? Yeah. Um so the light of the red jewel and furnace flame at one point, not by sound, not by sight, but once more by the warning fragrance, Mr. Rochester's cigar. So like the moon was like red and there were like little like mentions of red throughout and then they were together and well, then The, the fact n- that
0: the moon was blood red right before the big reveal is not an accident either. Right? There's the color imagery and the imagery with the moon Almost like, hey maybe don't marry that dude. You get it. <laughs> it's a whole thing.
7: Okay. Um, and then next he's returning from his trip um, and I, um, her disc was blood red and o- half overcast again the moon. Um, and finally Jane's like finally admitting to him that she like has a passion for him and like really wants him because she would kind of like been ignoring it and been like I don't want to change things. Um, So the main purpose of this is to represent the passion and entrapment felt between them. Um, So then imprisonment of wealth, status, marriage and love as well as the past was the biggest thing I focused on. So Mr. Rochester's promise of marriage will free Jane from her boring and simple life as she will be able to travel the world with him. Her wealth and placement have restricted her from this. However, Mr. Rochester is a prisoner of his own. He can't escape his past which then imprisons Jane yet again but this time without the confinement of walls.
0: And in in essence, it's Rochester's father and brother who did imprison him with, it was a good job. You are right. Um, all right, you ready?
11: Oh, is it me now? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I have two slides. So this first slide is just quotes, and then I have some explanation about them on the, the next slide. But, um, so there was a lot of different dreams and visions, mainly nightmares, uh, mostly just nightmares, actually. Um, but I included the first one, isn't a dream that actually happened, but it is connected to the dreams that she has later. And then she describes two different dreams, mainly. Uh, one of them is, like, kind of a dark night, and then the other one is Thornfield Hall, but it was in, like, a ruin, and there's bats and owls and stuff, and then she, like, drops a baby. and then yeah, the
0: whole baby dropping one is a whole...
11: Yeah. yeah. And then... She wakes up and thinks it's all good and then realizes there, there's, like, a figure standing in her room.
0: How come this then, wasn't mentioned on the gothic? Did you guys think it was still part of the dream or something? Okay. Because you know Bertha was in her room, took yeah. her wedding veil. You, you, okay, good. Okay, good. Did Bertha, you,
11: okay, go ahead. Yeah, and then she sees the whole wedding veil thing and then it, like, comes over to her and blows out the candle in front of her. And then she passes out from dread, which is... She says later is like the second time that that's ever happened to her. Uh, It's like the second time since the Red Room.
0: Someone in your room? The night before your wedding? Holding on to your veil? And then you still get married.
11: That's wrong You know what I'm saying? And then I just put a... And then the last quote is just her mentioning it's like the night before her wedding and she mentions how she never even slept at all that night.
0: Well, and the thing that... We're going to get to this in a second, but the thing that is really important here, is who's now a new character foil to Jane? Bertha. So now Charlotte Bronte's done this expert thing where she put uh, Miss Ingram and Jane, juxtapose them to become a character foil, but now there's a character foil on the other side just the complete opposite of Ingram so now Jane is positioned as a foil to both characters and she's in the middle signaling that she's reaching self-actualization finding a medium or a, some sort of balance between all of these themes and ideas right but she sees Bertha in the mirror and talks about Bertha and in the description of Bertha we see a character foil between Bertha and Jane and it's echoed when Rochester says he looks at Jane and he said look at you the picture of sanity Did you guys notice that line? So in in Rochester's mind the whole time, yes, Jane is a juxtaposition to Blanche, but she's also a refreshing contrast to what he's experienced with Bertha the whole time.
11: And then, so it has like, I explained it, how it's basically all foreshadowing Mm -hmm. for the wedding. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's starting with the tree being struck with lightning, and then as it gets closer to the wedding, they become more frequent and become worse. And Almost it, as if
0: someone's trying to stop her from doing something.
11: It's, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's basically all symbolic of the wedding. And you can tell that mainly because after the wedding, it
0: mostly stops. And then mostly before her, the wedding. her dreams become, her nightmares become reality as she wanders the moors of England and almost dies. Yes. That picture is super creepy. Nice job. Okay. You ready?
13: Yeah. All uh. right food nourishment
0: this is a
13: uh, big one in this section sure. chapter 8 has a lot where it talks about it um let's start it off right in the beginning of chapter 28 uh where she kind of just in the middle of nowhere right before she gets to the moors um she finds a nice place to hide from the elements and she has a little piece of bread left and then she finds some berries and she's all out of money and that's what she eats Um, and then she gets the moors, um, and when she gets right in there, she sees a little shop that is selling bread, um, and she thinks that, like, it'd be really nice to have the bread, but she has no money, and so she's not willing in yet to go into bargain, because later she goes and tries to bargain for bread for a handkerchief. Um, and then, uh, Jane also bread from the farmer, when she's just walking in the middle of nowhere. Um and she
0: talks about relying on the kindness of strangers. Yeah, a lot. Which is mirrored later in a streetcar named Desire.
13: Um and then just overall, right? Food is trying to convey how she is and how she's acting.
0: Yes, her, her emotional state is her relationship to food. We'll finish the rest next time. In-